This morning I'm going to talk about the book of Acts, but I want to start by talking about parenting. Here's a little news flash for those of you who are going to be parents, or those of you who are parents, you will know this. When you become old like me, you really begin to know this particular truth. You ready? Parenting is costly. You may think, what happened to him this week? <laughs> Nothing. But the older I get, and the more I think about what it means to be a parent, the more I realize how incredibly one-sided the relationship is between parents and children. Now, some of you have told me grandparent, grandparenting and grandchildren level the scales. We'll see. But what I'm saying is that parenting fundamentally is costly. So a couple years ago, I realized this in spades. We dropped our twins off at college, said goodbye to them, and they walked away to a zipline party food fest, <laughs> and we got in our car and went home to empty rooms. You know what I'm saying? As I'm driving home, I'm reflecting on this moment with my wife, and I'm saying this to her. This is incredibly unfair. Like, we, we spent all this money, we did all this effort, we spent all this energy discipling our children, and, and this is how it ends. They go to a zipline party, and we go home to an empty house. I mean, there should be a zipline parent, uh, a thing for parents, right? A zipline party, a certificate, something. That's maybe a good idea to have. But the fact of the matter is, is it's just incredibly one-sided, and then here's the deal. That's exactly the way that it's supposed to be. Parenting is supposed to be costly. The emotional, spiritual investment that parents make in the lives of their children it's not only appropriate, it's right. I didn't realize how expensive it was. I'm glad I didn't read this article a few years ago. The Department of Agriculture estimates, do you know how much it costs to raise a child in the United States today from zero to 17? Do you wanna know this number? $233,000. Kids, look at your parents and say, thanks, mom and dad. And that's, that's before college, by the way. Do you know the annual cost to feed a teenager in a home? It's a fortune. It's $2,800 a year. Now, why do I share all of these statistics? Well, the point is this, that parenting is expensive, it's emotionally costly, it's spiritually costly, it's relationally costly, that, that, that raising children requires this deep self-sacrifice, but at the end of the day, that's the way it's supposed to be, and it's totally worth it. The sacrifices that a parent makes are part of the parenting equation. If you're gonna have children, if you're gonna grow a family, then that calculus needs to be part of the mix. In other words, selfishness and stinginess do not work well with parenting. This morning we're talking about the matter of multiplication. And I want to make a connection between what I've just shared with you about parenting and the concept of multiplication. We're in the middle of this eight-week series on what it means for the church to multiply, and I, as I'm reading these texts in the book of Acts, I can't help but see the connection between parenting and multiplication of the gospel. Here's the connection. 
In the same way that launching children is incredibly costly, but absolutely worth it, it's right. So too, gospel multiplication requires a sacrificial generosity that is always painful and always worthwhile. There are some relationships in life where the pain of generosity is just part of what it means to see the fruit of one's labors. In other words, if you were to simply use the financial costs as it relates to evaluating if you should have children or not, just on the finances alone, you might be inclined never to have them. But that would be a really concerning way to think about parenting. Parenting involves a different calculus, and the same is true for multiplication. There's a different equation, there's a different value set at work, and that idea of a different value set at work in multiplication is what we're going to explore today. Again, we're trying to answer three questions in this series on multiplication. Number one, what were the ingredients for a missional movement of the early church? What were the things that characterized the church? How can we model those? Two, what is the unique mission that God is calling our church to in 2018? And three, what is your spirit-empowered mission? The first week we looked at vision. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Second week we looked at prayer, how it's the fuel for gospel work. We had another 150 people at prayer this morning at seven o'clock. My heart's so encouraged. Thank you to those of you who came and joined us tonight. By the way, we're gathering for prayer at five in our worship-based prayer night. We're gonna meet from five to six that will include a congregational meeting. We'll talk about some important things and would ask you to come and pray and join us in that regard. Our church needs to pray. We need God's spirit to help us. And then last week we learned how the gospel advances as God works through words to reach the world. Today we're gonna to look at generosity. And we're going to see the way that generosity becomes the means by which a gospel movement is fueled and multiplied. In order for you to understand where we're going in this text, you need to see three particular characteristics or three key concepts for generosity. And those three concepts are found in two texts. So take your Bible and I want you to look at Acts 2 and verse 44. And then keep your place there, and then we're going to go to Acts 4 and verse 32. These two texts are incredibly similar, although they're in two different sections in the book of Acts, but they carry the same message. Acts 2 and verse 44 says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So they believed, they were together, and they had all things in common. That's Acts 2.44. Now take your Bible and go over to Acts 4.32. You'll hear the exact same language. And the reason there's the same language in two different chapters in the book of Acts as it relates to generosity is because there are key concepts that relate to generosity that are underneath everything that multiplication is. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So when I take those two texts together, here's what I see. I see a model of generosity that looks like this. 
Generosity requires a level of conviction. They believed. It requires an emotional connection. They were together. They were of one heart and soul. And it also requires action. They didn't regard their goods as their own. They sold them and gave them away. So generosity involves the convergence of these three values. If you neglect any one of these values, you don't have true generosity. For instance, just one illustration, if you have conviction and emotion but no action, you're, you're, you, you, you believe that you should give, you feel like you should give, but you don't give, you're not generous. Like you gotta have all three. Or if you have conviction that you should give and you do give but you have no emotional connection to it, it's not the true spirit of what generosity is. And so this morning what I do is I wanna unpack this model in terms of what generosity is and then help you to see how it relates to the matter of multiplication. So we're gonna look at these three key concepts and consider what do we think, what do we feel, and what do we do as it relates to this matter of generosity. All right, number one is the issue of conviction. What are the beliefs that are underneath generosity? Generosity essentially is a byproduct of what a person individually or what a community believes. So we're gonna get to other areas of generosity like a cheerful heart and actually doing something, but it's important that we start here because generosity or a lack of generosity flows from what you think, from what you believe. Even those who are hoarders have things that they believe that that creates their their tendency to accumulate. If you've seen those shows on on, on television of hoarders who have all of these things, one article said this about hoarders, hoarders assign too much value to their possessions. They make it difficult or impossible to decide to get rid of the things that they have. One of the characteristics of hoarding is that people feel this sense of discomfort if they feel like they may be giving away something that they could use in the future. So at the root root of hoarding is a belief system. And so we see at the root of generosity is a belief system. This community, if you look at Acts chapter two, is described in verse 44 as a group of believers. It says, and all who believed were together. What do they believe? What does it mean that they believed? Well, if you go back to Peter's sermon that we looked at a few weeks ago, we would see, or rather last week, we would see that Peter's sermon identified that these believers acknowledged the crucified Christ, that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. They believed that he was the Son of God. They believed that he was the Messiah. They believed that he rose from the dead. They believed that in the name of Jesus they could be forgiven of their sins. They believed that they could receive this Holy Spirit. In other words, what they believed is they believed the gospel. They believed, according to Peter, that even though they were guilty and deserving of God's wrath, they could be counted righteous through faith in Jesus. They believed the promise of God's grace, that even those who were far off could be brought near, according to Acts 2 and verse 39. So all of these things were matters of belief. And then this belief resulted in uh, Embracing of the apostles' teaching, of the fellowship, of the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
But what you need to know is that everything about their generosity that we're going to see flowed from their fundamental belief in this good news, that Jesus came to give himself for undeserving sinners. They believed that the guilty could be forgiven. They believed that God's grace comes at great cost to Jesus. They believed that he who had everything became nothing so that they who had nothing could become everything. This is the belief which is not only the foundation of the church, the foundation of community, but this belief is the foundation of all generosity. And this theme is woven throughout the New Testament in all forms of when it comes to thinking about generosity. Example one, Philippians two, when Paul tells believers, consider others more important than yourself. In other words, be generous about how you think about others. To what does he appeal? In Philippians 2, he appeals to the example of Jesus. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, who took the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Or take Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 9, or rather 8 in verse 9, where he motivates the Christians at Corinth to give generously. And in his appeal to get them to give generously, he appeals to their belief in what Jesus did. Paul says this, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this is a fundamental understanding underneath all Christian generosity. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the Lord Jesus was eternally rich, glorious and exalted, but though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. It is impossible that our divine Lord could have fellowship with us unless he had given to us from his own abounding wealth and had become poor in order to make us rich. So church, underneath the matter of generosity is a fundamental belief system. Listen, what you and I believe about the gospel directly informs how we view others, how we view their needs, how you view the church, how you view your possessions, what you believe about God's grace has a direct effect on the subject of generosity and then by implication, multiplication. Graced people are gracious. The people who have experienced God's grace are gracious. Let me go back to the parenting illustration. You would no doubt think that it would be wrong for a parent to be stingy with his or her children. Imagine a parent who's regularly complaining to his or her kids about how much they cost. Imagine a parent who is regularly reminding children all of what is required in their sacrifice as parents. I mean, it's one thing for me to talk about this matter of launching children and how much it costs on the way home. It's another just before I hug my kids goodbye to say, man, you are so expensive and this has been a lot of work and I'm not, I just don't know if it's been worth it, you know? And I mean, you would, that's just not right. Imagine a parent whose attitude is, we gave birth to you but we're not interested in giving you any more. 
It's not only unnatural, church, it's wrong. So too, the biblical view of generosity flows from a fundamental conviction about what has happened to us in the gospel, that there is a direct connection between what God has done to us in grace and the way in which we are then gracious. Therefore, listen carefully, ungracious people give evidence that they may not have experienced God's grace. One of the things that I love, I mean really, really love about our church is one of our core values is extravagant grace. If you go out in the atrium, turn around and look backwards at this facility, you'll see our core values, and one of them is extravagant grace. And for those of you who may not know what this means, it means that from the moments of our church's founding in 1985, we've been committed to living out this value through how we live personally and how we invest in others financially. I can give you story after story after story. It's things like taking up offerings, how we've used Christmas offering funds, how we've leveraged benevolent needs, how you, and I hear about it all the time, bring meals to hurting families, or how we just as a church try and err on the side of grace. Tonight in our worship-based prayer night and our congregational meeting, we'll have a discussion about a church discipline matter. And those things don't get to you as a congregation until we have virtually exhausted all of our efforts because our aim is to restore, not to penalize. A few years ago, we, we put some language to this core value. Let me just remind you what extravagant, means, extravagant grace means here. It means this, that we desire to be a community of believers who treat others with the same extravagant grace that God has lavished on us. We yearn to demonstrate this grace through our church culture and our lives in a way that is transparent and real and helpful. We are blessed to be a blessing to each other, the city of Indianapolis, and the world. That's what extravagant grace means. It means we have tasted of God's grace. We can't help ourselves because graced people are gracious. So generosity begins with a conviction. These were believers and that made all the difference in the world. Secondly, is the matter of emotion. Not only what do we think, but then also what do we feel. Giving has to connect not only with what we think about, but also what's going on in our hearts. Many of you are familiar, no doubt, with the text in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. So generosity requires a conviction, but generosity also requires emotion. Take your Bible and look at Acts 2 and verse 44 again. It says, and all who believed, this is Acts 2, 44, were together, together. This is the Greek word koinonia, it means fellowship. The implication, listen, is more than simply being in the same place. The idea is that in gathering together, they were making a statement that they were together that their hearts were knit. They viewed themselves as a body. They viewed themselves as a family. In our discipleship strategy, we use the word belong to capture this. There was a, an emotional connection to one another. So it's not just that they were in a room, it's that they were part of something bigger than themselves. So let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and seen a family that's gathered for a family meal? And as they're eating, 
no one's talking, and they're all on their phones, electronic devices. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? They're, they're, they're spending money to be in a different location other than their homes. They're seated around a table. They could be conversing, but instead, I don't know, if they're texting one another, I imagine not. I imagine what they're doing is they're posting on social media, killer dinner with my family, but no one's talking, right? So the idea of togetherness and koinonia is not that. It's not just that they're in the same room. It's not just that they're at the same table, but it is that the, there's a sameness of heart. In fact, Look at Acts 2 and verse 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together, and then it gives us some expressions of their togetherness, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So in Acts 2.46, the word together is not koinonia, it's the word that means same-mindedness. In other words, they, they had the same purpose, the same heart, the same longing. And then go to Acts 4 and verse 32. Look at this text. And again, these, these are two spots in the book of Acts where we see this concept of generosity. And in verse 32 it says this, Now the full number of those who believed, there it is again, those who believed were of, notice this, one heart and soul. They were unified in what they believed. There was an emotional connection to one another but then notice also this emotional connection extended to what they felt about their things. It says, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So this isn't just an intellectual commitment. This is how they felt about their possessions, that they, they viewed their things that they possessed as something that was more than just what belonged to them. When they looked at their stuff, they didn't feel, that's mine. The word mine is an emotionally laden term, is it not? I mean, I don't care how you say mine. It's, it's loaded. You don't believe me? Just go to Target afterwards and walk next to somebody as you're coming up to a cart, and with a smile on your face, just say to them, mine. And you'll sense the awkwardness of the moment. It doesn't matter how you say the word mine. You can say it in a mean way, you can say it in a nice way, you can say it in a quiet way, you can say it in a loud way, but mine is loaded because there's an emotional connection to that word, and what Luke is telling us is that when the church looked at their possessions, mine was not on the forefront of their thinking. Last year we talked about this with the idea of killing the curl. And for some of us, our challenge is not that we don't believe the gospel. It's not that we don't know that generosity isn't important. It's not that we somehow think that we're not supposed to be generous people. No, the, the problem is, is that we curl around our time. We curl our fingers around our possessions. We curl our fingers around the things that give us satisfaction, and we look at our things as our own. That's why those scriptures constantly warn us about keeping an eye on our hearts as it relates to money, because we curl our fingers around our possessions. That's why the book of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. 
Why 1 Timothy 6 says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The idea of this text is their possessions, listen, didn't have an emotional hold on them. It means that their love for one another eclipsed their love of what their things meant to them. Their natural love for their money, their natural love for their possessions was now conquered by a greater love for the people around them. If you're a parent, you know this to be true. I remember when my dad bought his first new vehicle. He said, hey, let's go out and we're gonna celebrate. And we, we went to Wendy's. So <laughs> it still makes me laugh. And, and, and we got to go, we got Wendy's to go, and I'll never forget, I got chili. And I was sitting in the back seat with chili in my dad's first brand new car. And I remember the look as he turned around and he said, Mark, man, would you please be careful, <laughs> right? And the, the idea is that parents, just think of your, the condition of your vehicles if you have young children right now. Just think of the condition of your home, right? And there's a part of you that you'd rather have that kind of vehicle, you'd rather have that kind of home than have a museum or a pristine vehicle without any children. It's just you love your children more than you love some stellar or um, some perfectly manicured um, house or perfectly kept lawn or perfectly arranged bedrooms or perfectly clean cars. You love your children more, and that's the idea. You see your possessions through the lens of, yeah, we got kids. So that means French fries on the floor like, that are so crusty they could survive just about anything. It means that if you get underneath your, your couch, you'll find a small fortune underneath there, and you don't care because your, your life is given to the reality of children. When we give, both individually and as an entire church, we say something. Every time we spend money, we're making a value decision, and when you give money away, you're making a decision about what you really value. And the question is, what does it say, what does generosity say about our hearts? Tonight at our congregational meeting, we'll consider adopting another church. And you need to know that one of the reasons that, that we're passionate about adopting churches, and not all of them, but the ones that we think the Lord is leading us to, is because I hate seeing churches fold and close. Like, like there's something within my soul that just aches. For instance, when I drive into Whitestown, and I look on the right side of the road, on the north side, and I see the, the new and renovated Whitestown Municipal Building, and I'm grateful that that's there for the city of Whitestown, but it causes me so much pain to realize that that used to be a church. It used to be a church. Or when I drive through another city not too long ago, and I saw a church that was converted into a a, a workout facility and a health club, and I see that, and something within me just goes, oh, I feel that so deeply within me, and my 
perspective on our city of Indianapolis is I gotta know, I gotta know that I can't help because everything within me says we gotta help. We gotta do something because it's like a child or my kids, my heart. I feel together. I'm of one mind and one soul, and something within me says, is there some way for us to be able to help? My heart aches to help hurting churches. My heart aches to help with the needs that are happening in the Brookside area of our city. My heart aches to see the needle moved on more unreached people groups hearing the gospel. And so the the key in generosity is not just I've been graced by the gospel, but also it is that my heart is together. I feel such deep compassion. And as a result, it helps us to kill the curl. So one of the ways that multiplication happened in the early church, one of the ways that multiplication will happen at our church is by this heart-based emotional generosity such that one heart and one soul means that we're all in when it comes to giving. People who love the gospel, people who love the church, and people who love the world are generous. So if we love unreached people groups, we'll give financially to reach them. We'll give really good people to go and reach them. If we love the urban core, we'll give. Some of you have moved into that area of the city. We'll give to help start businesses and ministries. And also, if we love our city, then we will be generous, yes, even with giving our people away. Because generosity is not just a commitment of the mind because we've been graced, but it's also a commitment of the heart because we are together of one mind and one soul. And our love to reach people eclipses looking at our stuff and saying this is our own. So conviction, emotion, here's the third, and that's action. The final concept in generosity is simply taking action. If, if we're honest, this is where some of us just, just straight out struggle. It's not that we don't know that we should be generous, it's not that we don't feel, like you feel it in your soul, but the reality is some of you are gonna do what you've done so many times as a result of this message. You'll hear a message on generosity, you'll feel motivated, and you'll go out and you'll do nothing. And it's a subtle strategy to do an end run around what God is calling you to do. Having the heart to be generous, having the conviction that you should be generous doesn't mean that we're actually generous. So multiplication and generosity requires real people with real possessions and real money to do something. And that's what we see here in the book of Acts. We see this expressed in a number of statements. Look at Acts 2 and verse 45. Here's what it says. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In other words, they saw the things that they had not simply as the means for their own provision or their own satisfaction, but rather they saw the things that they possessed as an opportunity to meet the needs in someone else's life. And as a result, they killed the curl, 
and they were willing and ready to give. Now go to Acts 4 and verse 34. Acts 4 and verse 34, we see the same thing. It says, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what's happening is the, the early church has this, this perpetual generosity thing that's happening. They, they, they understood the beauty of God's grace. They were open-handed in the things that they had, and whenever they saw a need, they were ready to part with their possessions, whatever it was, some cases it was land as, as, as identified here, could have been money, and they laid it at the apostles' feet in order for that to be distributed. So they used the church body as the means of their distribution to be able to meet the needs. What's interesting is this became such a part of their culture that we find a man named Barnabas who's listed as a great example of a man who does this. And then what's also interesting is there were people in the church who wanted to appear generous, but they actually weren't. And that's what we find the story of Ananias and Sapphira who come and pretend like they're generous and God knows about it and strikes them dead. Because here's the thing. God not only wants generosity in the church, but he also wants people to be legitimately generous and not pretend like they're generous. They were willing to sell them, their possessions, in order to meet the needs of people around them because what was rolling through their hearts. The point here is for us just to see that generosity requires action. In fact, I would argue that how you handle your money, your possessions, as it relates to the needs that are around you is one of the most tangible expressions of what we really believe about the gospel and, and what you feel about people who are part of your church. Back to the parenting analogy. If I have a wacky view of parenting, then I'll raise children so that they meet my needs. I'll raise children for selfish purposes so they meet my needs. What about me? What about my zip lines? What about my party? What about, what about me? What about how come I have to, and you, 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 may know, you may be a parent like that. You may have been raised with a parent like that. And that's really, really bad. On the other hand, you could also have parents that not only don't understand how to not think in a self-centered way, but who also would look at their children and give them as little as possible out of a fear of being taken advantage of. And as a result, both perspectives on parenting miss the core and the heart of what parenting is supposed to be. That one of the clearest expressions that you understand what it means to be a parent and one of the clearest expressions that you love being a parent is this life-giving generosity that extends to your time, to your heart, to your money, to your possessions. Generosity, or a lack thereof, says something. Here's how John says it rather bluntly in 1 John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
What John is doing is making a straight line connection between generous actions are important because they validate one's belief in the gospel. They affirm that you believe the gospel. What's more, listen to this, that generosity also affirms that you love the community of believers. Means that you love this body of believers, that you love this church, you love what's happening in the context of what's taking place even on Sunday morning, that generous actions affirm that you are heartly connected in heart and in soul to the people to whom you belong. So the text ends, and notice now what happens. This is remarkable. Look at chapter four and verse 33. It says this, and great power, and with great power rather, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So as they have the spirit of generosity, there's, there's more things that are happening in, in them and through them. And then go to Acts chapter two and verses 46 and 47. We see the same thing that appears here. It says this, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then notice this, because they were generous, because they took risky steps to meet the needs of people around them, because they killed the curl in their life, the text says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, God multiplied their efforts. He blessed them even more. And generosity was a critical part of the equation. Generosity was vital to their multiplication. In fact, the Bible goes even further than this. Do you know that God promises to multiply our efforts when we get serious about trusting him through generosity? Take your Bible, it's the last text we're gonna look at, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse nine. This is a very important text because here's the thing, when you are gonna try and give money away, one of the first thoughts that will happen is when I give this money away, what's gonna happen to the gap? Or, as we've talked about sending people away to help churches and plant churches, a very good, common question that comes is, how are we gonna survive as a church if we keep giving our people away and giving our money away? That's a great question. And you know what the answer is? I don't know. I don't know. And if I knew, that would take away all the fun. It'd take all the beauty away. And it would take 2 Corinthians 9 away. This is a really important text. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 9 says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and, what's the next word? Multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's in the Bible. And I think we ought to stake our claim on that text, which says, not a health and wealth gospel, but it says this. Look, when we take the risk of giving, God gives us more grace, and he can trust us with this, he can trust us with, uh, with more. So therefore, we give generously, we give lavishly, we give through extravagant grace at the end of the day because we believe in a, an economy that we cannot see. We believe in a church growth movement that you can not put on paper. It is the divine calculus that says the world needs more churches, the city needs help, we have people and money, let's give it away and see what happens. That, dear church, is the essence of multiplication and how generosity fuels movements of the gospel around the world. That's how it's always been 
And that's how it could be and can be and has been at our church. Multiplication is fueled by generosity. So let's give and see what God does. Father, help us. Help us to believe what's in the Bible. Help us to believe that you're ready and able to give us grace and make us the kind of people who are so graced by the gospel that we hold everything in our lives loosely. Our time, our money, all of it, we want to uncurl our fingers even today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.